Um, we've spent the last few weeks looking at one of the most well-known sermons in, uh, in uh, the Gospel of John by Jesus. And for almost a month now, we've, we've been focused on this topic of Jesus and food, right? Which we, uh, we, we haven't seen it in the pandemic, but if you're new with us here at Spring Hill, we love those two topics, right? Jesus and food, we're bringing it back soon. But we started a few weeks ago with this story of Christ He's performing this miracle out, uh, out in the wilderness of Galilee. He's fed thousands with just uh, five loaves and two, two fish. And the crowds are in awe. That evening, the disciples cross the, the Sea of Galilee. And in the midst of this night storm, Jesus again shows up by his power and might. He's walking on the, the wind and the waves. And he brings them ashore. And now, and now they've come to this town called Capernaum on the other side of the sea. Some people call this Jesus' hometown because he and his family lived there for a while. And it's not long before the crowds catch back up. And last week we learned that all the crowds began demanding another sign. We want more. They want a a miracle to come down of food from heaven so they can eat their fill again. But rather than give them what they want, Jesus walks into the local synagogue and he preaches this famous sermon about food. He said, following me is not about getting what you want. It's about receiving what you need. Let me say that again. Following me is not about getting what you want. It's about receiving what you need. Jesus tells them you don't need another miracle of loaves or manna fall from heaven. I am the bread of life. And that's enough. That's been our focus the last few weeks. But this morning, we now turn uh, here in a minute to the postscript of this sermon where Jesus is now alone with his disciples, the closest of his followers. And they're trying to process in their minds what Jesus meant by these words of bread and life. And it's in this moment this morning that we find two distinct responses to who Jesus is. The first is this declaration and this certain commitment to following him. And the second we're going to find is that some of Jesus' closest followers walk away. So let's open up to this story together. I believe God has something important to teach us this morning. But before we do, will you pray with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your your words of eternal life, Lord. For the gospel and the message that washes over each of us, not once, but over and over again, that you are good, that your mercy and grace and love endure forever. God, as we open up this, this story this morning of you and your disciples, those who are following you and those who fall away, Lord, would you make it afresh on our ears? God, help us to be focused in a, the midst of a world of a lot of distractions for just the next few minutes here on you. Lord, that we might be changed by you shaped by you, formed by you, that others might see us following you and want to come to you. Lord, speak to us now and all God's people said, amen. So we're going to read John 6, verse 60 to 71. 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, that being the sermon Jesus just spoke, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. 
the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. You ever stop to really think about a word before? I mean, uh, like thought about it until it started to sound weird in your head. You ever done that? This week I've been thinking about the word almost. I feel like almost is the kind of word where the more you say it, the stranger it sounds. Say it with me. Almost. 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 You get what I'm saying? I almost passed the test. I almost caught that fish. I almost hit that hole in one. I almost landed that job. And I've been thinking, you know, for the most part, no one wants to be an almost, right? I've ruminated on this all week. So I I guess there are some positive meanings to the word, like I almost got attacked by that mountain lion or I almost died last night. But for the most part, it's, it's not a good thing to be almost. To be almost is, as we all know, it's to have gotten so close and yet not. Starting in the 1940s, that one word became the most popular campaign of the Ad Council of America. The campaign is, is known as the failure of almost. And over the years, even today, you've probably seen some ads of that campaign at one point or another. They've used the theme many times. In one commercial, a man is on his crutches and he begins this attempt to get up the stairs in his apartment. But as he stumbles back down, we hear this commentator appear. This voice tells us, this man almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave their time and money. And as the man lay sitting on these steps in pain, the voice then asks, what good is almost giving? about as good as almost walking. In another ad, a camera pans across the room to an elderly woman sitting in the dark by herself in the easy chair. She's mindlessly sort of staring off in the distance and this same voice appears. This time we're given a name. This is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost cooked for. They almost stopped by to say hi. Almost gave themselves and their time. But almost serving is the same as not serving at all. I think one of the most powerful ads that I came across this week tells a story about a man named Jack Thomas. Jack is huddled up outside on this cold winter day with just an old bed sheet and rags sort of covering him and keeping him warm. And this same voice now introduces him to uh, to us. This is Jack. Today someone almost brought Jack something to eat. They almost gave him a warm blanket. Almost took him to the shelter. And then there's a pause in this 
camera zooms out on this man shivering in the cold and and then the voice says, and Jack Thomas? Well, Jack almost made it through the night. In our lesson this morning, it seems to me God's word throws caution to that concept of almost. There's this gathering of disciples and behind the scenes they're grumbling. For some reason they've joined the crowds from last week as we knew they too were complaining about Christ. Look at this up in verse 60 on the screens. When many of his disciples heard this sermon, they said, this is a hard saying, who can tolerate it? Here's why they were so frustrated. Jesus had just told them, I'm the bread come down from heaven. You don't need another sign or miracle. You need me. He went on to share that his body and his blood would bring life. But when the crowds don't get what they want, everyone begins complaining. In other words, those who had been following Jesus were more interested in food than they were the spiritual reality of what that miracle of loaves and fish pointed to. And the crowds are even more upset that this man, Jesus, would make such a bold claim to be God. You know, still today you think about it, the idea that there is a God and he is in control of this universe and even of your life is often offensive to people. Meanwhile, the disciples are trying to figure out what it means that they can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And this sermon of Christ has put everyone at crisis. It's a two roads diverged in the woods kind of moment. In verse 61, look at this. Jesus asked me, he says, are you offended that I told you I come down from heaven? Then what would happen if you were to see me ascending back to where I came from? It was an offensive thing even, even then and now to talk about something as crazy as feasting on flesh and drinking blood. That was the word last week. That would have been taboo in any culture, let alone first century Judaism. But Jesus says, if that kind of talk bothers you, just think of how offended you'll be when you see me up on that cross. Isaiah 52, 13 to 14, I think it paints us a picture of what Jesus is looking at. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. Here's how Jesus puts it. He says, if you think talking about my body and blood is offensive, wait until you see my ascension to the Father. That concept of of Jesus ascending back to where he came from, it, it really produces one of two thoughts, right? It's either a painful, beautiful moment as we look to the cross and we point and say, look at how he loved us, or it's a laughing matter. And for those who had mocked him, it was a see, he was just a fraud like I told you. And the hard reality is there are some, or we should say many, in Jesus' midst in this lesson who fit the category of almost. They've almost bought into who Jesus is. They almost believe, they almost understand, they almost trust. And somehow, supernaturally, Jesus knows that those who are closest to his chest have been gossiping behind his back. And they're asking one another, are we really going to tolerate what this man has to say? So as only Christ can do, he gathers his disciples together and he tells them outright, the hard truth of the matter is, there are some of you here, even now, who don't believe. Some of you here who are simply almost. 
there's a young child in England who was once asked by a local group of scientists if they could lower him down into a cave. They needed him for the job because the, the hole was too small for an adult to fit through. And this group of geologists, they were trying to gather up specimens from this cavern, but the boy was terrified. He was the only child within miles, and they needed those samples desperately, so they began bargaining with him. They told him, what is it that you need? We'll give you whatever you want. The boy thought about it for a minute. He paused, and after some time, he said, okay, here's what I need. He said, I have one condition. My condition is that my father be the one who holds the ropes as you lower me down. What I'm trying to say is when it comes to our faith, there is no such thing as almost, right? Either we trust in the one who holds the ropes or we don't. Jesus tells his disciples, the words that I have given you are spirit and life, but there are some here who refuse to believe. You know, people ask all the time, particularly in this day and age, how do we know the Holy Spirit is moving? How do we know that the Holy Spirit is in our midst? In today's church, we've, we've wrongly reduced the Holy Spirit to a feeling, a, a euphoria, a sensationalism. Often people think when you don't have the feel-goods anymore, the Spirit must not be on the move. And yet the words that Jesus says this morning is, I have spoken to you words of Spirit and life. When we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit is moving. And yet there's this cohort of disciples, right? More than just the 12. And they're following Jesus from miracle to miracle, teaching to teaching, going through the motions. They're looking the part. And yet our lesson tells us Jesus knew from the very beginning some would believe and some would all out reject him. Despite their hearing of the good news, they would walk away. You know, I think it's a humbling thing for us to sit with this idea that the Lord knows the heart. In the book of 1 Samuel, God sends the prophet Samuel to find this, this new king of Israel, right? And ultimately, Samuel's been sent to anoint King David as the one who would lead God's people. But when he first arrives to find this chosen king, Samuel comes across all these brothers who seem to be the perfect candidates instead. They're tall, they're muscular, they, they look the part of monarch. And as Samuel begins to evaluate each one, he gets a bit off course, In fact, so much, of course, he sees one of these brothers named Eliab, and he wonders if he should be the king instead. Look at this up in uh, verse 7, though. This is what God responds to Samuel's inquisition for. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. I've rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, Jesus is singing the same song and dance this morning. He sees right through his followers, eyes wide open, hearts exposed. I love how one commentator explained this predicament. He said, what the crowds wanted, Jesus would not give. And what Christ offered, the crowds would not receive. Give us more bread. I am the bread of life. It was an almost kind of impasse. And I think it presents us with a question. I think we do well to ask it of ourselves. Let's put this up on the screens. I want to be intentional about this. What is it that we really want from Jesus? And is that actually what the Lord wants to give us? I want us to wrestle with those two questions because I think what comes next are some of the most heart-wrenching words in the entire Bible. Look at this in verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. What they wanted, Jesus wouldn't give. 
and what they needed they refused to accept. If only almost were to count, right? See, it seems to me this is the challenge for us as the church today. Do do we give the world what it wants or do we offer it what it needs? I think a lot of times in church land, we, we make decisions off of popularity and numbers instead of discipleship and depth. We, we run marketing schemes and ad campaigns, but we seldom hold one another accountable to share the gospel ourselves as Christ intended it. Entertainment has somehow taken precedence over God's word. Being fed is now more popular, far more popular than doing the feeding. And what we want, if we're not careful, becomes more important than what we need. As I shared a few weeks ago, uh, it seems to me that what we win them with is ultimately what we win them to. Look at this in verse 67. After the followers of Jesus left them behind, Christ turns to the 12 and he says, you want to go too? Like if this moment doesn't cause us to take a deep breath, right, we should pause until it does. Can you imagine watching as your, your friends who have been following Jesus have walked away, everybody's left and you're there standing exposed and Jesus asks you, what say you? Growing up, I had a childhood dog named Sage. Uh, Sage was a Brittany Spaniel and by the looks of her, you would think she was a champion bird dog, right? But she was the dumbest pup you have ever met. We, my parents, in vain, they decided to pay for some dog training with, with these high hopes, but almost immediately, it was clear Sage was a disaster. There wasn't enough shot collars or pop cans thrown at her. I mean, she barked all night long. There was no obedience. So one day, my mom and I, we loaded her up and brought her to this park where this professional-looking dog show-like thing is going down, right? All these purebreds prancing around in circles and training just right. And Sage shows up, she thinks it's a social gathering, right? Whatever we asked her to do, she did the opposite. She didn't sit, she didn't stay, she didn't heal. And I remember a specific instance where the the instructor took the leash and he was going to show us how it was done, right? He was going to make this thing work. So just as he takes this leash, Sage sees a butterfly flying by, right? And he's going to show her what's up. So he yanks on this collar and she's choking to death, grasping for breath. But the butterfly flies back again, and both her two front legs are just dancing in the air because she's going to go after the butterfly even if it means death. Sage's biggest problem was that she was so prone to chase the distractions she couldn't follow. Let's ask this hard question for a minute. What if the Jesus we thought we were following together was someone entirely different than we actually knew. I mean, Jesus says offensive things, right? He, he teaches us sayings that if we're honest, we would rather not hear them. This is a difficult thing. Who can tolerate it? Christ says things like, deny yourself. He taught us these shocking lessons like, love your enemies. Oh, I see your suffering. Rejoice in that. He told us you can't serve two masters. You have to choose one, God or money. He told us to take up our cross. He he taught us that the world hates me and therefore it's going to hate you too. And some of the disciples, when they hear the difficult words of Jesus, they leave him. Because as our lesson tells it, there were some from the very beginning who didn't believe. 
And I think the question that God's word presents to us this morning is what say you? Just as things are looking grim, um, here comes Peter. I call him ready, fire, aim Peter because most of the time he's sticking his foot in the mouth. But this time he's got it. He nails it. We could make this a memory verse. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe that we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else is there? And with that statement, we now see the two roads in the woods. One is a devastating tragedy and an almost kind of followership that walks away when the going gets tough. And the other is a declaration of, Lord, we're all in. Peter says, what alternatives are there anyway? Who else could we turn to? Where would we go? Look at how he says this later in Acts 4. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and now Peter is the preacher. He's the one giving the sermon. This time it's before the Sanhedrin, and he says this to this Jewish council. He says, there is no one else that we might gain salvation. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Max Lucado once told a story about a man named Noble Doss in one of his books. If you're a Texans fan, uh, you probably heard this story before. Back in 1941, Doss had led his team to an undefeated season. They had just one game left before the Rose Bowl, and all the championship was in their sights. It was Texas Longhorns versus Baylor University, hard rivals. Fast forward to the third quarter. The Longhorns are up 7-0 at the very end. Things are looking up for them. The quarterback tosses a Hail Mary. Doss is wide open. All he has to do is catch the ball. Victory is secure. Doss puts his hands up in the air. The Longhorn fans stand to their feet. And then wide open, he dropped the ball. 20 yards. That's all that stood between him and the national championship. But somehow the ball slipped through his fingers and it was an incomplete pass. The momentum of the game changed. Baylor rallied. Texas lost. And decades later, at 80-something years old, Doss was interviewed by the local papers. And he talked about how most of the Texans fans, they all remember all the successful plays he made, all the passes caught. But then he started to weep. And with these tears rolling down his cheeks, he said, every day I think of that moment, I almost caught the ball. And we were almost the champions of the world. I think we can all look out over our lives and we can find those moments of almost, yeah? Those times where we almost said yes to Christ, where we almost led by the nudge of the Holy Spirit, but somehow the ball slipped through. But here's the good news of God's word this morning. Jesus said it's the spirit who gives life, even if the flesh is no help at all. The words that I spoke to you, Jesus said, were spirit and life. So here's our takeaway this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, right? The ancient words that he taught us, the the power of the Holy Spirit through them, they're enough. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't have to make it fancy or make it look good. All we have to do is respond to it. Because despite our flesh, despite our wanderings, despite our tendency to walk away, the Spirit can take even the hardest of hearts and with the gospel, transform it in Jesus' name. A few weeks ago, we talked about being a fan or a follower. And as we wrap up this entire chapter of God's word and this, this saga of Jesus' sermon, here's, here's one we might look at. Ask the Holy Spirit to look within you 
Are you all in or almost? Let me pray for us. God, I just want to ask you, Lord, the one who gives life by the Holy Spirit to move this morning. God, we, we regret, we weep. Lord, we lament the fact that there would be followers who walked away. God, and we know that you knew it was because they didn't believe to begin with. And yet, Lord, just that idea is a devastating thought. God, we know that the words you give us are spirit and life. Lord, that just as you breathed life into Adam and, and brought an abundance, Lord, you breathe life through your gospel word. So God, we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, move among us. Lord, would you help us to be conduits of that, that same grace, that same message, that same hope into a world that needs to hear it. God, and let that be enough for us today. Lord, we're all in. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.